Fresh start, new creature. The scriptures that have been given to me for this assignment are found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And we will be considering all of those and some of their friends as we consider this topic. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I would like to talk about these phrasings in this passage, such as in Christ, new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. In Christ. Two words only. So Brief, yet such a profound statement of the significance of the believer's redemption. This statement contains the following truths. First of all, the believer has a secure hope in Christ who bore in his body God's judgment against sin. Secondly, we see in these words God's acceptance of the believer justification in him, that is, in Christ, in whom God alone is well-pleased. This makes God well-pleased in us. When he looks at us, he sees him, but only if we are in him, that is, purchased by his blood and conformed to his image and faithfully maintaining that image. I want to thank Andy for the reading in Isaiah 53. And I want to highlight in particular there verses 8 and 12. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's all about being in Christ, and do you know what it really is about? It's about our paternity, our paternity. Who's our dad? It's Father's Day. Who's our dad? That's what this is about. If I were to say to you, my grandmother was 100% Christian, and so my father is 50% Christian, and I'm very happy and proud to stand before you today and say that I am 25% Christian. Doesn't work, does it? Now, we have been sold a bill of goods that makes us think that that works biologically, and it doesn't work there either. But it is made very clear when we look at it this way from a spiritual application. If there were a spiritual DNA test, because these tests, and, and I, 
I'm really kind of tired of hearing about them, but I realize that they have very important roles that they play. And one of the main factors that came to the forefront initially with DNA testing was to establish paternity. And it's also very valuable in crime scene investigation and all of that, and I don't discount any of that. But we're talking about a spiritual application here. Who is your father? That's what Isaiah 53 and especially 8 through 12 and I selected and read again for you verse 8 and verse 12 to highlight that point. That's what it's about. It's talking about generation. It's talking about inheritance. And the scriptures present Christ as our older brother. But in this sense, he is our father. Because although, no, he did not marry. He did not have uh, relations with any uh, human woman and produce any offspring. Physically speaking, he was cut off in the prime of his life. But this is how it works. Spiritually, this is how it works. And it's all about us being in Christ. <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which we looked at uh, last evening. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You trusted after you heard the word. The God-revealed gospel of Jesus Christ must be heard. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And believed. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to bring salvation. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. God's own spirit comes to indwell the believer and thus secures and preserves his eternal salvation if the bearer of God's seal faithfully carries out God's directives. We have to be in. We have to keep. As the Lord said, how do you love me? You love me by keeping my commandments. This ceiling that Paul speaks of is using the imagery from the official mark of identification that would be placed on a letter, a contract, or other document. The document was thereby officially under the authority of the person whose stamp was on that seal. Four primary truths were signified by that seal. Security, authenticity, ownership, and authority. How do you identify? That's what it's about. The believer's future assurance in him, in Christ, who is the resurrection to eternal life and the sole guarantor of the believer's inheritance in heaven. The Holy Spirit, we spoke of yesterday, is our guarantor of our redemption in Christ. Then, once having been redeemed, that is, coupon having been turned in, if you will, Jesus, as our spiritual progenitor, is the only one who can serve as our guarantor of our home in heaven. John 14, 1 through 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. The believer's participation in the divine nature of Christ is what we're talking about. And this is through the everlasting word. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There is physical birth, and there is spiritual birth. We're talking about spiritual birth, and we're talking about the new creation. This phrase, new creation, describes something that is created at a qualitatively new level of excellence. It refers to regeneration, and as it is often called in the scripture, it is a new birth, like when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus struggled with that concept because he was thinking about it physically, and it's an impossibility. It's ridiculous to think about physically, but we are talking about a birth, a new paternity in Christ. This is the new creation. This is the identification. So, like I said, I'm throwing in a few extras besides the list I was given. I have several scriptures, and a lot of them I'm just going to read for you. Here we have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So we have a choice spiritually about who our father is can be that one that was just mentioned. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's one of the identifications of those children, of that father. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Titus 3 and 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 3 and 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 John 5 and 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. The expression new creation encompasses the Christian's forgiveness of sins paid for in Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. The reason that it can be spoken of the way that it is 
as a constant is because of our two advocates that we spoke of last night. Christ and the Holy Spirit. Another thought that was given to me in connection with this, a passage that's found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, where it says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now we're going to say a little bit more about this uh, aspect, especially this illustration of circumcision in relation to this here in just a little bit. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The old has passed away. Passed away. That's a polite euphemism for what? Died. So it's dead. be ridiculous to try to put that on again. It stinks. It's rotten. We don't want that anymore. The regenerate person's old value systems, priorities, beliefs, loves, plans are gone. Evil does not disappear. It does not vanish. Sin is still present. But like was spoken of earlier, those glasses that we wear, the believers see these things in a new perspective. And they no longer have control over him. Now, we started out in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But if you back up a verse and you look at verse 16, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ According to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. After Paul's conversion, his priority was to meet people's spiritual needs. Therefore, Paul no longer evaluated people according to the external, human, worldly standards. Please understand. Please Force yourself, if necessary, to realize just how limiting it is when we measure each other by this sort of standard. Do you know how many Christians' spiritual growth is impeded by a non-spiritual way of reckoning? Like when they refuse to forgive Do you know how many of his children God is going to have to send to hell over issues like that? I once knew a man that literally kept a little black book. And he had his own mental system where kind of a three strikes you're out kind of a thing. And he kept names and check marks. And he never told you about it. But if you, according to him, transgressed, you were in that black book. He had that against you. Take that little book. 
and throw it against this book, what happens? Powder, pulverized, vanished. So if according to your little book, there's a problem, I suggest you get rid of that little book. Nor did Paul, once he became a Christian, have any longer a merely human assessment of Christ. You see, that was what was holding him up. When he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus was calling out to him and he said, Who are you, Lord? Well, yes, there was the bright light. He couldn't see the person of Christ. We can think about all of that. But does this mean that, that Paul of Tarsus did not know Jesus of Nazareth? I don't think so. He was so prominent in the Jewish faith, that meant that he made frequent trips to Jerusalem and in around those regions. He knew well who this individual was. He did not see him as the Messiah, as God on earth. After his conversion, he no longer allowed his sight to be limited by looking at Jesus only as a human being. He knew him as who he truly was, God in the flesh, the God-man, the Messiah. The new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The Greek grammar here indicates that this newness is a continuing condition of fact. The believer's new perception of everything is a constant reality for him. The Christian now lives for eternity, not temporal things. And uh, James speaks of this, and we'll look at a passage in just a moment. But this is what Paul also talks about in Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In James 2, 14 through 25, we read, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
Also on the list from the elders was the verse Galatians 6:15. For neither circumcision circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And I thought of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And I thought how appropriate that is for illustrating our whole point today on this new creation idea. Now this this man Cornelius, we won't go there and, and read, but I would encourage you to perhaps have that open at, at your uh, reference, if you like, in Acts chapter 10. But it says that he was a centurion. This means he was one of 60 officers in a Roman legion. Now, each centurion would have command over 100 men, something like a modern army captain today. It says in my ESV, it calls it the Italian cohort or you might have regiment there. There were 10 cohorts of 600 men each made up then a legion. It says in verse 2 that he feared God. I would encourage you to look at Romans 2, 14 and 15 as a definition of this idea of fearing God, but I would nuance that a little bit in the case of this man Cornelius because of where he was in history and what was available to him. This would reflect, this God-fearer phrasing, would reflect a technical term that the Jews used in order to refer to pagans who had abandoned or who did not follow the pagan religions, but instead favored the worship of Jehovah. Now, such an individual, regardless of the strength of their godly character, their good deeds, or even their position in Gentile society. And we know that Cornelius held high position in that government, in that society, but even still, a person in that category would not be given even the limited treatment of a proselyte due to their not being circumcised. Now, some Gentiles at that time had either never practiced or had grown tired of the idolatry of their culture, its foolishness, its immorality. And many, including Cornelius, had found something better in the teachings in the synagogues and had accepted the truth of the one true God. The Jews were a distinct minority within the Roman Empire, but they nonetheless attracted significant numbers of sympathizers and converts to their community. So Gentiles being exposed to this could have varying degrees of adherence to Judaism. They could be in the category of what was called a benefactor, like the one we read about, another centurion that we read about in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Someone who supported the Jewish community and presumably was sympathetic to Jewish beliefs. Then there are the God-fearers, like Cornelius. And there are others that are presented in this way. Uh, besides Cornelius, we read about a couple in, uh, there's an example in Acts 13, 16 and Acts 17, 4. There's an important mention of this category of God-fearer in an inscription from about 210 AD in Aphrodisias in modern Turkey. So this was the category that Cornelius was in, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But then you had also the full proselyte. Now, the full proselyte, Gentile who had converted to Judaism had embraced all of its requirements 
And Josephus mentions a certain Izates of the royal family who embraced Judaism and had himself circumcised in order to accept the Jewish way of life. I suggest to you that the event of the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 would not have the significance that it does had Cornelius been a full proselyte to Judaism. In fact, I would venture to say that we would not even know this man's name. He might be recorded in one of those other history books, maybe, but he's presented in the biblical text for some very particular reasons, reasons that impact on what we're thinking about here this morning with this topic. <clears throat> Luke calls Cornelius devout. In other words, he was right in his attitudes toward both God and man, and by grace, he was living a godly life. Remember that dispensation that we call the patriarchal? Well, that's what he was living under. For him, it was still in effect. He'd been exposed now to Judaism, and he was contemplating some things, I think, related to that. It says that he feared, that is, he reverenced God. And it says not only him, but his whole household. This will be all of his family. It would be those who served under him, served in his household. This man had a great number of people under his influence. And I'm sure that when Cornelius went to the synagogue, there was a great entourage that went with him. But they had to sit in a special room off in the back, behind a wall. where they could only listen. They had not yet become full-fledged proselytes. They had not been circumcised. They did not keep the dietary laws. They listened attentively. They learned. They gave, well, in some cases, like it says of Cornelius, they gave generously to those in need. The box was open to them. There was no segregation imposed upon that. They prayed to God. They sought his direction for everything in their lives. And if you look at Acts chapter 10 verse 37, I think it's pretty clear from Peter's statement there that Cornelius by now knew also about Jesus, therefore he knew about the gospel at least to some degree. Now many scholars believe that this man wanted to accept Christ. He wanted to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But he had been told that he first must become a Jew. I look at the circumstances and all those factors I've mentioned, and I, I agree with that supposition because of the context of this story. It is very possibly, albeit likely, that Cornelius, when he was praying, it talks about how he, he had this uh, had God revealed to him that, that he needed to go seek out this man named Peter? While he was praying, what was he praying about? Maybe he was praying over his consideration of going ahead and doing what the people were telling him he must do, become circumcised and do all those things to become a Jew. But would that do? Would this satisfy some divine requirement for this man to be acceptable in the eyes of God? 
No. That would not do. In fact, in the eyes of God, that would be in itself an abomination. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 13. <clears throat> Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Note, they did not become the circumcision. There's two groups mentioned in that passage. And the Gentiles who came to Christ did not become the circumcision. They did not stop eating pork. They did not suddenly begin to don yarmulkes or wear Jewish-style clothing. They did not start wearing their hair or their beards in the manner of the Jews. They did not begin to build and arrange their houses like the Jews. They were not required to learn and speak Hebrew or Aramaic because such things are not to be considered as the proper definition of oneness in Christ. big mistake that we make is confusing two words that sound similar to one another but are very, very different from each other. We mix up the words unity and uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Now, yesterday, Brother Brad was talking about Carl Ketcherside. I would say to you that Carl had the right premise. He just applied it in the wrong place. Because doctrinally, we must be together. Absolutely. We're not to have diversity in doctrine. In fact, unless there are cultural, linguistic, ethnic, individual distinctions between people in the kingdom of Christ, then the picture of spiritual unity which transcends all of these is lost. We live, in a, uh, we live among a culture where basically the culture of the United States dictates that there is no culture. When we, when we think of some of these things, like these other identities. We're to conform to something, but we don't really know what it is. And so why are people doing all the crazy things they're doing? Because they're trying to find that identity. And if we are here in the church, and we have this idea that all must conform to our little isolationist concept, then we are sadly mistaken. By definition, unity means the uniting of different things. Genesis chapter 2, the man and the wife says they became one. Now, men, let me ask you, how much like you is your wife? This is an illustration 
of what we're talking about. When Jesus was on the cross and he was breathing almost his very last breath and uttering almost his very last words, in John 19 and 30 we have recorded that he said, it is finished. Now, okay, he was, he, the crucifixion has been going on. He's about to expire. Is that what, all that he meant? He meant, it is finished, Cornelius, the patriarchal system that you have understood. It is finished, Paul of Tarsus, the Jewish system that you have understood. Because by what is happening now, something new is about to transpire, such as has never been before. Ephesians 4.24, another one from the elders. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Before Christ can be put on, something has to be put off. Look at verse 22 of that same chapter in Ephesians 4. Put off means to strip away as in the taking off of old filthy clothes. So this is a metaphor for one's repentance from sin and submission to God, which moves a person to the washing of regeneration, that is, immersion into Christ. The worn out, useless, unconverted, sinful disposition of man corrupted by deceit. Salvation is a spiritual union with Jesus Christ that is described as the death and the burial of the old self and the resurrection and walking in newness of life of the new self. The old man, the new man, a new mind, a renovation of character, a transformation of the old self into the new self. Finally, Colossians 3, verse 10. <clears throat> And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And we're back again to Isaiah 53. When you put on Christ, you put on knowledge. A baby is born complete. We hope, if all goes well, right? Complete. But... Immature. The new man is complete, but has the capacity to grow, to grow in knowledge. Deep spiritual knowledge, without which there can be no growth or renewal. Now I want you to imagine, if you can, if you dare, because it's a pretty disgusting picture. But imagine right now this room filled with a bunch of 200-pound babies sucking on bottles. Not a pretty sight. But surely that must be exactly how some of us look to God spiritually. I hope you are not one of them. But if you are, I say... 
it's high time you grew up. It's going to feel funny at first, but you need to quit being carried. You need to start walking. Did anybody see that animated movie, Wally? If you did, there's a picture that can help you with this. People in that futuristic society had lost the ability to walk, had to learn it all over again. They had computers, machines, robots for their every whim. As you grow up, here's what happens. Again, it's Father's Day. You begin to look more like your father. And in this illustration, what we're talking about is Christ being conformed to his image. I have four grandsons. So I'm just getting started with that picture. Some of you have been there for a while. But as a grandparent, you look at your grandchildren. And who do you see in them? You see your children in them. And hopefully, that brings you joy. But we're talking about when our Heavenly Father looks at us, He is looking at us, and what He wants to see is not that person, but the person, Christ. The one who made them. That's the goal. Now, we do not have much control over whether we resemble our earthly fathers or not in the physical sense. We can maybe work on certain factors, but as we mature and get older, this is not a direction that we can uh, do by choice. But spiritually, it is. Spiritually, we can make the decisions every day which cause us to look more and more and more like Jesus. One step at a time. So if you have not started walking, it just takes putting one foot in front of the other. And we are here to cheer you on we all get so excited when a little baby starts taking its first steps. And spiritually, that is as it should be as well. Be assured that there will be much rejoicing in your first spiritual steps. Whatever your needs are, if it means that you have gotten lazy, you've gotten distracted, you've gotten thrown off the track, you've lost the ability to step. Well, this, like we say, is an ongoing thing, but it requires us repenting. This, this change, this new creation, can be affected again in us. Or if we have never submitted to the blood of Jesus, 